Well, thank you, Pastor Pine. Um, you know, it's sometimes customary to come and tell a story on the home pastor. And I, and I thought after 20 years, there, there are a few stories, and I had to weed some of them out. But I thought there's one that I told him recently, and he hadn't remembered. But we were in Peru together, and um, in our hometown, we play um, this game um, called Slug Bug or Punch Buggies. Anybody ever heard of that, right? So I didn't know if that was just sort of a Cincinnati thing. or So I'm sitting next to your pastor on a bench and a Volkswagen bug comes by and I'm rolling over my head. Well, does he know about this game? If I were to hit him in the leg right now, would would he know what that's about or would he you know, be upset? Would this surprise him? And as I'm thinking about it, I get punched. So I thought, well, I guess this is more universal than I realized. So something to learn about your pastor if you're wondering whether or not you should give him a whack. I would say, from my experience, just go ahead. That way you can get it in first. Uh, but we've had lots of fun times together. And Tell them the rest of the story. The rest of yesterday. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, yesterday he got what was coming to him. Is that what you mean? <laughs> yeah, it came full circle on that one. Yeah. <laughs> so we have enjoyed one another's fellowship and ministry for many, many years. And I'm so, so grateful um, to have this brother in the Lord and... Uh, and Karen as well. They've, been, they've both been a great blessing uh, to me personally and also to our mission agency. And so we're, we're grateful to be able to serve the Lord together and now to be able to come to the Lord together with you all as we, we look to his word. Would you open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Our scripture reading will be just the final few verses of Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35. But this comes as... Scripture does, it comes within a context. And here we see the Lord's ministry in the first verse is a summation of things that have gone on in the first, uh, first part of the chapter. So uh, please stand, if you would, for the reading of the Lord's word. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. May God add his blessing to the reading and the faithful hearing of his word. Please be seated. Let's bow our heads briefly as we come to the Lord's message. Father, we come to you once again and are thankful for your word. It is the word of life. It is living and it is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. We pray, Father, that it would do its work in our hearts to bring you glory. And we trust that it will because of the promise of your word itself, that your word as it goes out will accomplish that for which it is gone. And we pray, Lord, that our hearts would be good soil for the hearing and the obedience that is due to your holy name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning with a question, not a happy question, but a bit of a, a downer of a question. And the question is this, have you ever seen suffering up close and personal. 
Have you ever seen suffering up close and personal? I think, I think we all have, some of us more than others. But we've all in some way seen some degree of suffering, and, and it's hard, and I would say nearly impossible to see great suffering and not have it impact you in some way, in some way. Some years ago, I was with a team from our church in Cincinnati. Ten men went to Haiti after Hurricane Matthew devastated that island nation. We were there um, in coordination with a, a local ministry in the Cincinnati area um, to help rebuild a school and a church. And as the ten of us arrived in the city of Port-au-Prince, uh, we, we, got, we arrived about noon. We made our way to a van, the ten of us, crammed ourselves into this van, and we began to make our way out of the city. And this was my second time in Haiti, but for most of our team, it was the first time they'd ever been and were seeing this nation. It's the poorest nation in our hemisphere. And as we, as we made our way through the city, I noticed that a young man to my left was watching out the window and there was just a sea of people. If you've ever, you've ever seen the ball drop for New Year's and you see all the folks crowded together in Times Square, it was like that on, what was it, a Tuesday. Just any normal day. And there were, there were seas of people, desperate people. People living in abject poverty. And as, as we drove through the city and we saw... I would say thousands of people as we drove that day. And this young man to my left looked out the window and tears just rolled down his face because of the, what he was seeing and what he was trying to understand and grasp about the difficulty in the life that these individuals were facing. So in Haiti, uh, we, there, there's nothing close to a... A righteous justice system. And that means the weakest get trampled upon by the powerful. And it happens. And there's no recourse when, when evil happens in a society like that. And so uh, people become desperate. And when they have no food and, and children are malnourished, then uh, sickness and disease increase. And you can imagine if you're a parent... Or even if you have love for a niece or a nephew or a child, when you see a child that's sick and is suffering, um, you want to do something. You want to do whatever you can to help that child out of that suffering. And so you can imagine parents do many desperate things in a nation like that because they don't know what else to do. And this is, this is what can happen when, when truth, when righteousness departs from a nation, and a nation falls in such a way. You know, when we see these kinds of things, it does bring something out of us. And I, I'm grateful that the young man to my left saw that, and he wept with those who wept. He had compassion for them. In our passage today, we see an account of Jesus ministering among multitudes of desperate and suffering people. The passage represents a summary of the, the first part of Matthew chapter 9. And if we were to have read that, we would have come across 
several people who had been impacted by the the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. We would have seen a paralytic healed. We would have seen a, a dead girl raised to life. A woman healed after 12 years of suffering. We would have seen two blind men given sight and a mute man enabled to speak. In Matthew chapter 9 here, what I want us to see is that even while Jesus is preaching the gospel all over the region and he's healing every disease and every affliction, he sees yet a greater suffering and calls his disciples to decisive and surprising action. I want us to make some observations. First, I want to see that Jesus sees the crowds and the need of the crowds. And then we'll make some observations about the way he calls his disciples to action. And so as you hear this message, uh, I see some people taking notes, which is wonderful. You may find a list of prayer requests uh, that come out of this. In the end, Jesus is calling his disciples to pray for laborers in the harvest. So there's, there's the surprise, right? But along the way, there's great application for us. We see in the example of Jesus that we can come and we can pray that the Lord by his spirit would work in us. First thing I want us to observe is that in Matthew chapter 9 here, Jesus discovers the need of the multitudes by his presence among those in need. He went throughout all the cities and villages. He's not in an ivory tower someplace commanding his disciples to to go and to do and to serve. He himself is there among those he finds in need. He was already active in kingdom service. He was teaching. He was proclaiming the gospel. He was healing. And for us, I think, if we ourselves are not actively serving the kingdom of God, we may find ourselves tragically oblivious to terrible suffering all around us. If we're not there, we don't know what's going on. And suffering will continue. And we may not feel guilty because we do not know. But we have every reason to understand our obligation is love of God first. And to love our neighbor as ourself as the second great commandment. And we see the Lord Jesus Christ is doing this in his mission and in his obedience to the Father. He is ministering as God has called him to do, and we must do the same. And so a good question for each of us, a question I'll pose to you is, how are you actively serving the kingdom of God? How are you? And, and you know, there are difficult times, there are difficult seasons. Um, many of you have prayed for my wife and, and her her uh, the cancer that she's been through, and she's had some surgeries related to that. And I'll tell you, I don't expect her to do much in the months after a surgery, right? She's healing. Um, and so when I ask you that question, please understand, um, this, it just doesn't come with an automatic guilt trip. But the question of what are you doing to serve the kingdom of God is an important question. And one we must all answer. The second observation, so first, we've observed that Jesus has, has met this need by his presence, and secondly, he's discerned it 
by his spiritual perspective. Is Jesus ministering to the physical needs of the people that he's encountered here? Absolutely he is. He certainly is. Should you and I minister to the physical needs of the people around us as the Lord gives us the means to? Absolutely we should. We should. But Jesus understands that the harassment of their souls was a much greater suffering than the harassment of their bodies. He didn't neglect their physical needs, but he did not overlook the spiritual needs of their souls. If we haven't trained our minds to consider the things above, we may be, as I said, tragically unaware of the need around us. Colossians chapter 3, you may remember, says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And the word of God says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So do you, do you walk through this life with eternity in mind? Do you walk through, you know, if we, if we think in terms of investment, right, we, a long-term investment is an important thing. If, if, you and I are only going to see the fruit of something in the short term. Uh, we may not value that greatly. But if we see a greater return in a future investment, we may be patient and work toward that. And so when we see the scriptures and we think about our lives, what's the word of God tell us? But that our lives are a vapor. It's there and it vanishes away. That we will spend much more time after our death and in eternity Remember in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, It is appointed for a man once to die, but after this, the judgment. It is appointed for every man to stand before the judgment of God. That's a sobering thought, is it not? Everyone. The death rate is one per person. We all make it. Should the Lord tarry, we all make it. But if he returns before we die, we still will answer before the judgment of God. And so will the souls all around us. This was, this was a truth that Jesus was very well aware of. And may you and I remain aware of that as well. I would say there have been times in my life when I've been more and less sensitive to the needs of lost people around me. Sometimes I have been very sensitive and tuned into that, thinking about the souls of the people around me and not just what I see on the surface. But other times, for periods of time, I've not been so sensitive to that. And so it's important for us. Maybe we ought to pray, Lord, help me be sensitive to the needs of the souls of the people around us. And we've prayed for the souls of lost loved ones even today. And we ought to continue to do that. So even more, may we see the need of the souls and be actively serving Christ's kingdom and setting our minds on things above as Christ did. The third observation is that when Jesus saw these multitudes and their need, it was met with what? With compassion. With compassion. The prerequisite to seeing the opportunity or responding to the suffering of our fellow man is compassion. 
that when we see the suffering of someone else, that our inclination would be to have compassion on that person. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we could say that perhaps it's not always compassion first. Sometimes it's I told you so. Sometimes we can, we can first move to, to considering all the things a person has done wrong and, and overstep and overlook having compassion on that person. Now, why did Jesus come at it this way? Well, easily we could just say, well, he's God, and that's why. But I want us to see something that, that God has laid out for us clearly about his own character. So would you turn with me to Exodus chapter 34? Exodus chapter 34, one of the great Sunday school stories of the Bible. We have Moses, and he's asking God to show him his glory. Remember this? And God places him in the cleft of the rock. We look back in, in the chapter before uh, where Moses said, Please show me your glory. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. The Lord, or Yahweh, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And so as we go forward in this Exodus chapter 34, we come to this place. No one is to come up. And Moses had cut two tablets of stone like the first in verse 4. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord, or Yahweh as it as it was. And so Yahweh, in verse 6, passed before him and proclaimed. This is God himself. Let us not miss this. It is God himself speaking of himself. You know, it's one thing to have a pastor, a preacher, stand before you and speak as the voice of God. But here we have God himself. In one of the rare occasions, speaking of his own character. And so he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And so God, when he comes and he declares his own glory to Moses, he says one thing two times. Do you notice that? It's the steadfast love. In Hebrew, the word is chesed. Uh, you might see it spelled H-E-S-E-D or C-H-E-S-E-D in some places. And in your Bibles, you will most often see that word translated as mercy. It's a very difficult word to translate because it, it, it encompasses uh, many different beautiful facets of God's compassion and his love. And so here in Exodus 34, it is steadfast love. This is uh, related as well. This word has said comes up in Psalm 13. I was preparing a sermon um, a couple of years ago on Psalm 13, and I saw uh, that in four verses, everything was awful to the psalmist. Everything is awful. And, and he felt God had forgotten him. He was, he was searching for God, but God was nowhere to be found as though God was hiding from him. He was as lonely as a person could be. 
Things were as low as they could be. But in just six verses, four of them describing how awful it was, and in the sixth verse saying that he would praise God and God had dealt with him abundantly. I thought, what has happened in verse 5 is pivotal to what has happened and brought him from utter despair to praise, to rejoicing. You know what it was? The psalmist in Psalm 13 says, I remembered your steadfast love. I remembered your mercy. As I remembered your chesed. It was this character, this part of God's character that he considered. And he understood that all these difficult things, God must not have been hiding from him. God was a good God. We see this throughout the Bible. Hosea chapter 4. Uh, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or chesed. There's no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Hosea, do you, if you remember the story of the book of Hosea, there was idolatry going on. And there were many things that could have been pointed out. But here in this description of the problem God has with with the people that he's expressing through the prophet Hosea, he says there is no faithfulness or steadfast love in those people. And that was a problem among the people of God because this steadfast love or mercy or compassion, we might say, was missing. In Matthew or Micah chapter 6, verse 8, he's told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love, do you remember? Mercy, right? It's that word chesed again. To love, this is what God wants in his people. Do justice, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Um, you're probably familiar with Matthew Henry, that great, great Puritan pastor. In his commentary on Matthew chapter 9 here, he says, Jesus Christ is a very compassionate friend to precious souls. Here, his bowels do in a special manner yearn. Have you ever expressed yourself that way? You know, honey, my bowels do in a, in, in a special manner yearn. Well, he's saying something from deep within, right? I think we can understand that much. But here he's saying, of, of the Savior, of Jesus Christ, here his bowels do in a special manner yearn. It was pity to souls that brought him from heaven to earth and there to the cross. Misery is the object of mercy. And the miseries of sinful, self-destroying souls are the greatest miseries. Christ pities those most who pities themselves least, Matthew Henry says. So should we. He says the most Christian compassion is compassion to souls. It is the most Christ-like. When our compassion is compassion for souls... It is the most Christ-like. I think Matthew Henry's right. So, what does this mean for us? Well, pray that our instinct, when we see the suffering plight of sinful people, would be compassion. Lord, give me compassion. So if by God's grace we're moved to love for our fellow man, we'll ask what can be done so that these sheep can find the shepherd, as Jesus is ministering there among the villages, among the multitudes, 
The question was their need for shepherds to lead them to the great shepherd. And so we see Jesus calls his disciples to action. And the surprise it is not initially to go. You know, I shared with you um, that, that trip to Haiti. And it's my heart to go. Uh, in just a few weeks, I'll be going with a group of men from our church in Cincinnati to Neon, Kentucky. Perhaps you remember they had a, a, a terrifying night of rain that produced flooding in the hollers uh, of Kentucky. And so when creeks that trickled along most of the time rose 15 feet in those hollers and people's homes were swept away downstream. And so the devastation, this was July last year and there's been work done and there continues to be work done uh, to help those folks get back on their feet. And so it's in my heart to go. When I, when I see something, to go. And you know, it's not always the right impulse, just as a knee-jerk reaction to just say, okay, I'm going to go do something. Men, we, we tend to be guilty of this, right? We just want to fix it. If there's a problem, let's fix it. You know, we had a problem once in, uh, in the church in Cincinnati. We were trying to serve uh, with Good News Clubs. I don't know if you have those around here, but a Good News Club uh, is a ministry in schools, and it's a Bible club after school, and you can do those in, in public schools um, and we needed volunteers uh, to have a new club. And so this couple in our church, an older couple, uh, asked me to come over for lunch just so we could pray that the Lord would provide couples, uh, would provide volunteers. He said, you know, we could go and just beat the bushes and we could go and just ask people. And, a, a, you know, a direct ask is a good way to get volunteers. He said, but, you know, why don't we pray so we get God's best for this situation and to stop. And to pray is an important step. And so Jesus calls them to action, but it's not first to go. An observation here is that he says the harvest is plentiful. Jesus saw the suffering multitudes and he said the harvest is plentiful. Do you think it was because Jesus was just an optimistic guy? That he just, he looked on the bright side of life. He said, look, there's a great opportunity here. Now, he understood the power of God, that's for sure. But, you know, here's another truth. He was not just being optimistic. He knew. He knows the compassion of the Father and the compassion that saves souls. And there's a reality that souls will be saved. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, we read this. After this, John is saying, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What was there? A great multitude crying out, Salvation belongs to our God. And so our compassion for souls and seeking to bring the salvation that can only come through the name of Jesus Christ to them is no fool's errand. God will save his people. And in glory, there will be great multitudes crying out of the salvation 
of the Lord. And so when you and I, in our compassion, meet physical needs, but seek to meet the needs of the soul, not every single individual is going to drop to their knees and repent and come to Jesus. But we know this, that our labor is not in vain in the Lord, and that when we serve him faithfully, he will be glorified. And in that, he will show his glorious grace upon suffering souls. He will do this. He is doing this. And so the harvest is plentiful. Um, I shared of a time in January of 2020 when your pastor and I and 10 other folks were on a team to Peru. And we were in Sunday school, I shared that we were on a boat heading up, a ship heading up the Amazon River. And, and the pastor down there said, gesturing to the jungles, there are villages here. And the fields are white for harvest. He himself, 69 I think at the time, was out as a missionary serving in villages. He would come to the city for about a week to regroup and retool and then another three weeks out in the villages. And often even uh, recently I've seen uh, he sent a picture on the boat as he's going back out to the village because the fields are white and to harvest. And you know what he said? He said, Pray for laborers for this harvest. He, he asked that we would come and we would plant Bible Presbyterian churches. He's not a Bible Presbyterian, but he knows that we have the gospel as well. And he wants people saved. He wants souls cared for. And that's compassion. And that's an understanding that God saves souls. So what do we do? Jesus' compassionate response led him naturally to seek relief. For suffering souls. So the call to action is first a call to prayer. We talked about uh, a pastor from Myanmar. And the pastor, when uh, their country fell into warfare, and I sent a message and asked, what can we do? His response was pray. It is not the only thing, but it is the best thing. He believed that. That's not an original quote with that pastor, but he understood the truth of this. You and I have access to the throne of God, and being there on their behalf is the best thing that we can do for the souls, not only of the brothers and sisters who have already come to Christ, but those they're trying to reach in a desperate time. They're suffering and harassed souls, as we see in Matthew chapter 9. And so... Let us pray. I got three more prayer requests for you. First is this, Lord, send laborers. God is the one who must send the laborers. Do you see in verse 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. I'm, I'm back in Matthew 9. And then verse 38 says, Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He must be the one to send the laborers. You know, uh, in, in Romans chapter 10, do you remember this? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That great promise. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But, but how does that happen? Well, the apostle, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach 
unless they are sent. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You know, as we read the New Testament and we read the epistles of the Apostle Paul, so many times he's saying, I'm sending this person, receive him well. Right? I'm sending to you Epaphroditus. I have Timothy. No one cares for your souls like I do, but Timothy. You know, we have these kinds of things where, um, where this minister is being sent, not just from the Apostle Paul, but as the Apostle says about Timothy, according to the laying on the hands of the hands of the presbytery. The church is sending them as its ministers. So God, through his church, sends people. And so let us pray that God would send ministers and pray that they would go. That's what we hear in the Great Commission, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples. We can't simply be passive and wait for the lost soul to come to us and say, what must I do to be saved? But go. Be proactive in caring for lost souls around us. I want to share one more prayer request. Is that we who are home would send and let go. Would send and let go. Have you ever heard of Adoniram Judson? Adoniram Judson was a missionary to Burma. The first missionary from America to go. And he went to Burma. He was headed for India initially, but God changed the plans and he went to Burma, which is now Myanmar. And as he was preparing to go, he had his eyes set on a young lady. He had met her. He knew he needed a mate for this mission. And he also knew that where he was going was potentially very dangerous and a hazardous place. And so... He had to go and ask a man for the hand of his daughter who would take her to a foreign land. And we have the letter that he wrote. And I want you to hear this, this request he's making. And if you're a young man, I want you to think about the serious thinking that's gone into this request. And if you're a mother or father or grandparent, I want you to think about what it would be like to hear such a request that one of your loved ones would go off into a place where you can't protect them anymore uh, and you can't be there for them when they need it. And so, so Adoniram Judson, he writes this letter to the father of Anne Hasseltine and he says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more. In this life, whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, which is what was required just to get there, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, 
Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Can you imagine being asked, can, we, can your daughter go with me? And you would never see her again. She may suffer. She may die in this effort. But out of compassion for souls. And out of a love for God and his glory. Can you do that? That's a hard thing. You know, in America, we have more relative safety than most throughout the world. Um, my kids go to and from, and there are dangers. Uh, but the dangers they could face in a place like Haiti... <laughs> Are, are not quite able to be compared to that other situation. And so, I mean, I made the mistake of sharing that letter in one message, and I didn't answer the question. So my mother-in-law <laughs> said, what happened? I'll tell you. His, his answer was, her mother and I will not stand in the way. It will be up to Anne. And she went. He was, she was the first of three wives that Adoniram Judson had in Myanmar. She ended up dying of smallpox, but not before God used her in mighty and even perhaps miraculous ways. You know, there, were, there was a time when the gospel would have stopped going forward in Myanmar and, and because, because Adoniram Judson was, was not making headway but Anne had a relationship with the first lady, so to speak, of their town. And at that time, if, if you offended um, one of the, the local governor, it could mean your life. And it was a very savage place in that way. But this friendship that was forged between Anne and this vice regent's wife was... Um, was an amazing relationship. In fact, she, Anne was invited to regular visits with her. And if you know anything, like a, a church operates um, largely based on what uh, the women and the pastor's wife are willing to do in, in that church. And that was the case here as well. And so when Anne and Adoniram Judson lost a child in infancy and Anne failed to go and visit um, her regular her regular visit with the vice regent's wife. The vice regent's wife came and said, why have you not come? And this is terrifying. Now you've offended this royal family. Why have you not come? And so when she told her, the response of this woman was, I wish you would have told me so I could have come and been with you. See, this, this relationship that's happened, the way God used this did... Did Anne or Adoniram ever know that God was going to use Anne in this way? Did her parents ever know that God was going to use her in such a way? No, they had no idea. But out of compassion for these souls and out of desire to see God glorified, they consented and she went and God saved many. You know, our brothers and sisters in Myanmar now are the descendants of those that brought the gospel in those days. What a glorious thing that God does when people love souls and obey him.
And so, beloved, may God grant you and I eyes to see the great need of the souls around us. May he grant compassion that moves us to action, that leads us to praying that God would send laborers. And may he use you to plant or water or even bear fruit that harvests souls for the glory of Christ. And may he send out more into his harvest. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we come and thank you for the laborers that have worked for our souls. Those that have sacrificed sometimes a great deal and sometimes were willing to sacrifice a friendship because they were going to speak of Christ to us and did not know how we would respond. Whether we would ridicule them and reject them. But they came to us with the gospel. Father, I thank you for those that are faithfully serving you in ministries and in pulpits even today. And Lord, may your word go out in power. May your salvation be proclaimed in all the earth. And may you receive the glory that is due your name. We ask all of this in the name and for the sake of our Savior, Jesus Christ.